Have prayers been made? No. 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 In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. <coughs>
that you are part of a single universal world system. And then you turn sour on that world system. You don't like it anymore. What happens is you begin to feel that you have been imprisoned. You are part of a single, huge, everywhere present system, and the system is bad. You are familiar with this kind of talk, surely from the political left. Yes. There is a current of alienation that animates the political left. We're part of the system, man. The system's against us. The system grinds us down. The system is in the hands of our class enemies, etc., etc. We're being robbed. We're being oppressed. We're being persecuted. We're being ground down. We're being dehumanized. We're being marginalized. <laughs> and it's all the fault of the system. Well, what's the system? Gnosticism in the Roman Empire was an example of the same sort of alienation. But the alienation went far further than modern leftism does. Because the Roman Empire had behind it this one world cosmopolis system under the gods, especially Zeus, if the whole system was bad, you had to turn against the entire material universe. And this was the central Gnostic claim. The material universe is not a beautiful, orderly home. It is a prison. It is a trap. So it can't have been designed by some sort of good creator God. It must have been designed by, well, what do you want to call it? A wicked God? Or perhaps by a cosmic screw-up? <laughs> Maybe the God who made the world wasn't so much wicked as incompetent. But one way or the other, we were in a mess. We were in a trap. The whole physical world was the trap. And the Roman Empire was just more of the world system. It was all a trap. Central to this view, then, is the idea that material is in and of itself evil. Matter is the source of all evil. Matter is just evil. Spirit then must be good. But then after all, no religion can get very far saying, you know what, we're just rotten through and through. No, 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 no. If a religion is going to have any adherence, it's got to say there's something good about us. And if you can't pick on matter, you're going to pick on the spirit. So spirit was good and matter was evil. Now spirit was the soul. Matter was the body. So the body was evil. The body was a trap. This view, of course, led to interesting um, deviations in sexual practice. Because obviously, if the body is evil, then making babies is bringing more souls into the trap. You don't want to do that, do you? You want to get souls out of the trap, not bring more into it. So, whatever you do to relieve your romantic hungers, make sure that you don't do it in such a way as to produce offspring. <laughs> I won't discuss which maneuvers were productive to that sort of evasion. You probably know already. <laughs> So the body was evil. You should avoid procreation. And you should not identify the creator of the world with 
any good God. Now, Gnosticism encounters early Christianity. And here's the preaching about Jesus. And Gnosticism thinks it can work its way into Christianity and take it over from within by making Jesus a message bringer, a savior, oh yes, a message bringer from a higher realm. Above the God who's either bad or a screw-up and who made the world, there must be a higher God, a better God, a really good God who creates spirits, no, no doubt, but would not create bodies. Jesus is supposed to be a messenger from that higher God. Yes. What does he come to tell us? He, tell, he comes to tell us the secret for how to escape from the prison. Don't get married. Don't have babies. Submit your body to rigorous uh, punishments so as to defeat its urges and do everything to raise your mind above that. Okay. You should ignore uh, you should ignore material concerns, you should ignore political commitment, anything that has to do with this world and the body. You should hey, that's being otherworldly. Ah. You can see how some of this could pass muster as a distortion of Christianity. Well, one of the uh, apostles ran into Gnosticism in the very early days of its penetration. That was St. John the Evangelist, who, as you recall, lived to a ripe old age. And in Ephesus, encountered heretics who were saying that Jesus, the Savior, the messenger from way up above, did not come in the flesh. Because that's the last thing that a really high order messenger from a high order divinity would do. Matter is evil. Matter is the untouchable. <coughs> Matter is the sewer which must be escaped, right? So the emissary from on high cannot have taken on that. And so we read in the third epistle of St. John, okay? Whoever denies that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is Antichrist. Now, just a decade or two later, we encounter the epistles of St. Ignatius of Antioch, written around the year 107, when he was being conducted as a prisoner from his hometown of Antioch, where he had been bishop, across Asia Minor to go to Rome and be put on trial and, and uh, martyred and put to death. On that journey, he wrote a series of letters to the bishops of the churches through whose territory he was passing. We have uh, eight uh, of those letters. And he says, watch out. Okay. Watch out for people who, A, won't honor the virgin, and B, won't take the Eucharist. That's exactly how Gnostics would behave. They could not partake of the Eucharist because it was supposed to be the body of Christ. If he didn't have a body, then the Eucharist must be a hoax. It's somehow wrong. So you stayed away from the Eucharist. And if he didn't have a body, then the virgin could not be his mother. There you are. They refused to honor the virgin. 
because they denied that Jesus had a real body. Alright? And Irenaeus goes after them for this. Many later fathers go after them for this. Eventually, the Gnostics got clever. Obviously, you couldn't deny that Jesus was born of Mary. It was right there in Matthew and Luke. You couldn't exactly deny the biblical text. So, the Gnostics became clever and they played with the prepositions. With what? The prepositions. They said that Jesus was born through Mary, but not from Mary. Through but not from. So he comes in the world through the virgin, somewhat as light would pass through a pane of glass. He doesn't pick up real body stuff. But he comes into the world through her. But in no sense from her, he doesn't take anything from her. Because after all, she's a woman, and she's got a body. And what mothers are supposed to contribute to their children is bodies, ain't it? Well, that won't do. Now you know why the creed is worded the way it is, okay? Who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate De Spiritu Santo, by the Holy Spirit, ex Maria Virgine, from ex Maria Virgine, not just per Mariam Virginem, okay? That would be Gnostic. He's from the Blessed Virgin because he's taking his human nature, at least his body, from her. Yes? Okay. That was the old trouble about Our Lady. Yes? So, did they say that uh, he was a ghost or uh, something like that? That people saw him, right? They said that his body, well, there were several ways they could go, but one way they could go was to say that his body was a mere appearance. Okay? An appearance, not real. And the best um, example that I could give of that idea would be um, uh, a hologram. Okay? Like, for example, at the beginning of the of the original Star Wars movie, where the robot coughs up out of his guts this this three-dimensional image. Help me, Obi-Wan come. Uh, you know, you're my only hope. Alright? There she is. I mean she's an appearance of light. And you can't crucify an appearance of light. Exactly. Exactly. And this was one of the points that the church brought to bear against the Gnostics. You know, once the full implications of their position had been thought through. If he wasn't a real body, he couldn't have been crucified. If he wasn't crucified, he didn't suffer for our salvation. If he doesn't suffer for our salvation, we're not redeemed, we're still in our sins. Can I ask a question, please? Sure. Um, you how did they think about was this nine months? How what? Did this process go on in nine months like we do with our babies? Well, how did they, what, what, are they, what are they trying to say here? Wow. Is this an instantaneous thing? Um, they wouldn't be concerned about time. She could have given every appearance of going through a real gestation. But when he was born, it wasn't a real body. That's all. That was one way they could go. But then why did he bother being born or growing up? Oh, 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 oh. He had to come down and appear among us, walk among us, 
talk among us in order to give us the secret for how to get out of the cosmic prison. No, he doesn't. If he came out just 30 years old. But um, if he did, I mean, it would be probably more believable. But if Gnosticism had been free to completely reinvent the gospel any which way it wanted, no doubt that would have been a sensible way to go. But they weren't completely free. The text was there. All right? Gnosticism tried to infiltrate the church. Well, you had to be clever about that. But you couldn't obviously deny everything in the Gospels. Right. So they had to have him go through a childhood and so on, but all the while denying that that body was real, yes. But sounds a lot like New Age is taking a lot from Gnosticism. There are connections. Yes, indeed. Alright, enough about the old trouble about Our Lady, the Gnostic trouble. It had been put to rest and Our Lady's real maternity and the reality of Our Lord's body was affirmed everywhere by the end of the third century. It was an obvious well-respected part of orthodoxy. I come now to new trouble about Our Lady. The new trouble goes back to a man named Theodore from a town called Mopsuestia. Well, let's make some little board here. We'll get away from our bit of the creed. And we have Theodore of, that is from the town of Mopsuestia, a town in Asia Minor. Theodore was um, writing actively in the period from about 380 to 420. He was a learned theologian and had taken his lessons in the school of Antioch, which, of course, was still a very large city at the time and a great center of Christianity, patriarchy. Now, by the time that Theodore is writing, you need to know that a key term had become widespread. It was used by writers from Spain all the way east to what's now Iraq. Everywhere you had Christian writers, you would find people referring to Our Lady as the God-bearer, which in Greek is Theotokos. Tokos means bearer, like uh, when you bear a child. And Theotokos is one who bears God. And Our Lady had come to be called uh, the Holy Virgin God-bearer. The ever-Virgin God-bearer, i.e. Parthenos Maria the Theotokos. All right, so the term was in general use. But Theodore thought there was a problem about how to understand it or how to justify it. Now, we do not have the full set of Theodore's works uh, any longer uh, extant, but we have some uh, fragments and I'm going to give you now two quotations from these fragments of good old Theodore of Mopsuestia. Here's fragment number one. Quote, when people ask us if Mary is man-bearer or God-bearer, okay, what is it? A man-bearer or God-bearer in Greek, Anthropotos. Anthropotos. Is she a man bearer or a god bearer? When people ask us that, we should 
say that she is both the one and the other. She's man-bearer according to nature since it was a man who was in Mary's womb and who came out from there. And she is God-bearer because within the man whom Mary bore, God was present. He was there, not circumscribed according to his nature, but present according to the disposition of his will. Unquote. I think that's all clear enough, except maybe for the last phrase. What does it mean to say that God was present in the man whom she bore without his nature being circumscribed, without circumscription of nature? It means that our Lord's presence was not limited by the flesh which he took on. When he became present in the womb of the Virgin, he was not absent from the right hand of the Father in heaven. When he took on human nature, he did not cease to be the all-knowing, all-seeing governor of the world. So his divine nature is not, I don't know, like put in hobbles or doesn't have blinders put on it. That's what he means, and that, that's right. Then he says he's, he's not there as though his nature had been squeezed, his divine nature had been squeezed into a corner of the world. Rather, he's there according to a disposition of his will. Now, never mind what that means, because it isn't clear what it means. And what I want, what I want to point out to you is that every word I've read to you so far is... <laughs> did you hear any obvious heresy in that? I didn't. I mean, it's a little bit, maybe a little bit odd way to talk, but certainly nothing really heretical. It sounds okay. But now let me read you the next fragment from Dear Theodore, and you will see things sounding a little different. He says... It is folly to say that the word consubstantial with the Father was born of the Virgin Mary. Huh? Let's start that quote again. It is folly to say that the word consubstantial with the Father was born of the Virgin Mary. The one born of the virgin is the one formed from her substance, not the word who is God. The one who is consubstantial with the father has no mother. What is being said in the second quote is a disidentity. Is that a sensible word? A disidentity between the eternal Son of the Father, the word consubstantial of the one hand, and the man born of the Virgin on the other hand. There's a disidentity there. It's as though the Christ that we believe in has been divided into two parts. Okay. A begotten of the Father part and a begotten of Mary part. And right there is the germ of Nestorianism. Yes? Although, to be fair with Theodore, uh, we don't have his full writings. Yes. Uh, that's interpretation. I mean, yeah. he would have meant differently. 
Okay. Uh, that is very true. And I would like to show you how that can be true. Thank you for bringing this up. I think, well, in fact, I know, Theodore didn't originally write his works in Greek. He wrote in a form of Aramaic called Syriac. Okay? The Eastern dialect of Aramaic, which became a very important language for Christian literature in the ancient world. You all heard St. Ephraim the Syrian, for example, very great hymn writer and poetry writer in Syriac. Many fathers of the church wrote in Syriac. Well, Theodore was also a native speaker of Syriac. And the reason I'm telling you this is because Syriac, like the other Semitic languages, does cannot express the gender in its relative pronouns. Okay. So let me read this again, the second quote again, this time making everything neuter. Now listen to this. It is followed to say that the word consubstantial with the Father is born of the Virgin Mary. For that which is born of the Virgin is that which was formed of her substance, not the word who is God. That which is consubstantial with the Father has no mother. If I make it neuter, I'm saying that which is the one, that which is the other, I'm talking about the two natures. You see? But as soon as I take the, the that which and make it he who or the one who, I'm personalizing the issue. I'm ending up not with two natures, but with two persons. Does everybody see the problem? Okay. <laughs> Theodore does not have a clear account of nature versus person. <laughs> he doesn't have originally a language that allows him to talk about these things very clearly, as you can do in Greek or Latin or other Indo-European languages where the pronouns all have gender, including the relative pronouns. You distinguish masculine from neuter. You can't do that in Syria. Yeah. So would you say then that particularly in light of the fact that the first fragment seems to be very directly contradictory to the second fragment that what he wrote was not intended? His intentions are unclear. interpretation after it was rendered to Greek. That could be. What you can take away from this is the first fragment I gave you is ambiguous. If you take the second fragment as clearing it up, it gets worse. <laughs> and if you take the second fragment as really talking about he who or the one who, it gets a lot worse. All right? So there's trouble in the Aramaic-speaking part of the church, which is a big part of the church, and Antioch Center. Trouble in that part of the church distinguishing between how to talk about two natures and how to talk about two persons. Yes? But was this trouble based on a possible misinterpretation? Or is this really a movement that was maybe kind of fueled by the two? You know what I'm saying? Well. And how can anybody have a language that's fueled by what? Well, movement fueled by uh, this guy's words, the, your, your fragments, as opposed to, like, basically what I'm saying is, is it a movement that was based on a misinterpretation of the fragments, like you read the first time, yeah. or is it a movement that, um, like, this man intended? We don't know. Okay, Theodore Mopsuestia is a bit of an enigma. Um, he was not anathematized by anybody until long after his death. He got through life as a respected theologian. Okay. His ideas were re-examined, put under a microscope, and condemned after 
Nestorius brought the whole thing to the surface. Okay. So that's where I want to go next. What to make of the real intentions of Theodore of Mopsuestia? Who knows? The historians of dogma don't know. The scholars are divided. Well, he's been in God's hands for a long time. And I'm sure the matter is settled in heaven one way or the other. But for us, what we need to do now is move on to Brother Nestorius. Nestorius took the hints which were present in Theodore and used them as a basis to criticize the term Theotokos. How did you spell his name? Nestorius? Oh, just like it sounds. Ness and Tor E us. Okay. O R. You can see my handwriting. Awful. Nestorius. That's an R. I suppose it'd be an R. O T O R I guess. Nestorius. Your handwriting is better when you write Greek. Oh yeah. <laughs> Nestorius had had a perfectly acceptable career as a bishop in smaller towns in uh, Asia Minor. And he got promoted to the great see of Constantinople. There he is as patriarch. And there were local troubles. There, in fact, there was gang war inside the city of Constantinople. Instead of being called the Crips and the Bloods, the two gangs were called the Blues and the Greens. And instead of fighting over dope smuggling territory, they fought over theological slogans. <laughs> different time, different culture. It's interesting when you think about it. But the same, you know, fundamental human components that fuel gang warfare among adolescent men. He <laughs> these street riots over, over how to talk about the Blessed Virgin in particular. <laughs> and um, there was a God-bearer gang and a man-bearer gang. <laughs> huh? So you can think of Theodore Mopsuestia's ideas as sort of getting down into the blue-collar youth, ending up fueling street riots, and Nestorius, as patriarch, wants to bring peace, quiet down the mob violence, and he says, well, look, uh, both of these terms can be used. In fact, Nestorius had earlier sermons in which he himself had used the term. It's not that he refused to use it ever. He himself had used the term. But he said, look, it's got to be explained. Okay. How to explain it? Well, she doesn't exactly bear God. Okay. But God is in the one whom she bore. So if God is one, and the one whom she bore is another, then we got one inside of another. We got two, don't we? You're the one inside the other. One within the other. Yeah, okay. And then he says, look, to overcome the difficulties, why don't we drop both of these terms? And let's settle for calling her the Christ bearer. Okay. Well, as I have said, the term God bearer, Theotokos, had already come into pretty wide curtain. So when bishops in other cities heard that the new patriarch of Constantinople was saying, let's drop Theotokos, they right away suspected something was seriously wrong with his thought. And of those who had their suspicions, there was none more suspicious than dear Cyril of Alexandria. Bishop of Al Patriarch of Alexandria, Cyril, C-Y-R-I-L, of Alexandria, 
a fighter, uh, an extremely vigorous personality. And he launches a campaign against Nestorius. This guy, what do you mean? You can't drop this term. That's impossible. That's ridiculous. He starts on an attack. Nestorius starts to try to defend himself. Some correspondence goes back and forth between Constantinople and Alexandria, and then Rome gets drawn into the correspondence. So, let's just put it this way. Nestorius was a bit of a thunderhead. And um, the more he tried to explain his position, the worse it got. He ended up saying, look, we all believe that the word of God took on a complete humanity. Complete. Yes. But a complete humanity is a human hypothesis. So the divine hypostasis, who is the second person and the word, took on a human hypostasis. That gives you two hypostases in Christ. And a man who can't even spell the name and principal title of his Lord and God. Let's put the R back in Christ. There are. You got two hypostases now. Well, the hypothesis is supposed to be the individual thing of a given nature, right? Well, the divine logos is going to be the individual thing of divine nature. And the human hypothesis is going to be the individual thing of human nature. So you got two individuals. But don't we say, and here is Cyril of Alexandria wagging his finger under Nestorius's nose, what in the world are you doing? You are dividing Christ into two. Don't we say that there is one Christ? And indeed, if you will look at the ancient versions of the creed, the second member of the creed, all always begins with the word one. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, God, 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 and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Not two. We don't believe in two who somehow I know. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Yes? So, Cyril says, how are you going to get around that? Then, to try to fix his problem, Nestorius brings in Greek word, which previously does not have much history in theological debate. It is the word proskopon. P-R-O-S-O-P-O-N. This is the word for the masks that Greek actors wore in performing dramas. And you can translate it, therefore, as character. But I think the best way to translate it is role. I don't think it's helpful in this context to translate it as person. It's more helpful to translate the word as role. Because now you can sort of make sense of how Nestorius wanted to put the Lord Jesus back together again. Okay. You've got one divine individual, you've got one human individual. How are they one? Answer, they play one and the same role in salvation history. It's like having two actors playing one role. The second person of the Trinity and the son of Mary 
collaborate together in such a way that they are always joint agents of the acts which save us. So they are together uh, in birth from the virgin. They are together in the finding in the temple. They're together in the teachings and miracles in the gospel. They're acting together in the passion, on the cross, in the resurrection, and so on. But they're together. Now, please forgive this, because this is an awfully uh, silly comparison, but it's the best I can come up with. So they're together in the way that two actors are together if it happens to take two to play one of the same role in the play. Now suppose your elementary school decides to put on a play of the wonderful Mr. Ed, the talking horse. Okay. So one of the roles in the play is Mr. Ed. Well, no one kid can fill out a horse costume. <laughs> you need one kid to be the front of the horse and the other kid to be the back of the horse. And the two kids have to play this role together. Okay. Obviously, the divine logos is in the head position. And the human, the human individual is trailing along behind and cooperating so that the, the whole role gets played. <laughs> All right. What this idea does is make of the God and the man in Christ a moral union. That is to say, a union based upon a concordance of wills. It's not based on anything in pure nature or in metaphysical reality. Metaphysical, the divine individual and the human individual are two. End of story. Metaphysically, they are two. Two natures, two individuals. Whatever helps to make an individual out of it, they're two. But they work together. They have a concordance of wills. That's called a moral union. And uh, you were all familiar with moral unions. I mean, you could, you could become familiar with one anyway if you and a friend of yours go together and form a legal partnership. <coughs> it takes both of your signatures to commit the company to do, to, you know, to ask policies. <coughs> Everything works by concordance of Does everyone see it? It's a moral union. And this is exactly what um, Cyril of Alexandria said quite properly is utterly unacceptable. And um, called a council, called upon the bishops of the world to assemble at Ephesus to condemn this stuff. Rome agreed to the procedure. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria, I must say, was somewhat impatient. I mean, he had his council up and running before the before the Pope's representatives had So I, he, he was pushing things through. This can't be denied. Nevertheless, the Roman legates eventually did get there, and they did they did the condemnation of Nestorius, his deposition from the episcopate. Well, he ended up his life in exile. Okay. Here is, ended up in yeah. Here is the text from uh, the Council of, uh, of Ephesus. Okay. We do not say that The nature of the Word became flesh through a change in itself. And 
we also do not say that the word was turned into a whole human being composed of body and soul. The words being rejected here are change and transformation. Rather, we say that the word um, became man by an inexplicable and incomprehensible in an inexplicable and incomprehensible way by union, by uniting to himself flesh animated with a rational soul according to hypothesis. In other words, he united to himself hypothesis-wise a body, a flesh, animated by a rational soul. Notice that. He didn't become man by a Grimm's fairy tale change of divinity into flesh. He didn't become man by transforming himself completely into a body-soul composite, like the frog prince turning into a frog. Yes. None of that. Rather, he becomes man by uniting to himself in an ineffable way this complete body-soul composite. So he becomes man through a union. Yes. And this union takes place What can I do but give me three? The union takes place, kaf, hirpostasin. Kaf, hirpostasin. That is to say, according to or thanks to The preposition is hard to figure out exactly what it's doing. We would be more likely to say in the idiom that we've learned that um, he becomes man by uniting to himself the body-soul composite in a hypostasis. And the text goes on to say that we're dealing with just one hypostasis. He says that the Word existed as a son of man not just through his will or by taking on a role, a prosopon. And although the natures are diverse, <coughs> nevertheless, coming together in a genuine union, they make for us one Christ and one Son. There it is. Okay. Although the two natures are diverse, <coughs> Coming together in a genuine union, they yield or make for us one Christ and one Son. It's not that the difference between the natures is taken away by the union. Robert. The divinity and the humanity, by a hidden and ineffable conjunction, constitute for us one 
Jesus Christ and Son in one hypostasis. There's the end. This is the, the language approved at the Council of Ephesus. Now, I'm almost done for tonight. Almost done. We've read the text of the council, all right? And now I have to go back and remind you of what we talked about last week. We were talking about St. Basil's work, trying to figure out what a hypothesis is. And I gave you St. Basil's recipe for a hypothesis. Okay? He says, hypostasis equals common nature plus individuating traits. And we showed how this recipe worked perfectly well in talking about the Trinity, which was St. Basil's topic. Three hypotheses in God. Remember, what's a hypothesis? The hypothesis of the Father is the common divine nature plus the individuating trait of being unbegotten, unoriginate. The hypothesis of the Son is the common divine nature plus the individuating trait of being begotten. Yes? And the hypothesis of the Holy Spirit is, again, the common nature plus the individuating trait of proceeding in a certain way. All clear? Now, I want you to take this same definition, perfectly yielding perfectly acceptable results when applied to the Holy Trinity, and apply it instead in Christology. Now, we have, in Christ, two sides, if you will. We've got the divine side, and we've got the human side. Now, on the divine side, we have the second person of the Trinity, don't we? So on the divine side, we've got the common divine nature plus the distinguishing trait of being begotten plus the individuating trait of being begotten because after all, it wasn't the whole Trinity that became incarnate. It's not the whole general divine nature that becomes incarnate. It's only the second person, right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So on the divine side, we've got the common divine nature plus the individuating trait of being begotten. So we have a divine hypothesis. Yes? Oh, good, out of the human side. On the human side of Jesus, do we have the common human nature? Sure we do, or he wouldn't be man in any sense of the word. So we've got common human nature. Now then, did Jesus Christ have fingerprints? <laughs> distinctive fingerprints? Did he have individuating traits? Yes. He had all the individuating traits of Jesus of Nazareth, correct? Yes. Would you please look at the definition again, the recipe? And you can see that we have here a human hypothesis, don't we? That's what this story is said. Yes. Right. That we had two hypotheses in Christ. Two individuals. 
playing the same role. Yeah, 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 but two individuals, two hypostases. And the Council of Ephesus is saying, no, 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 you can't say that. There's just one Christ, there's just one Son, because these two natures are united together in one hypostasis. St. Basil's recipe for a hypothesis led straight to Nestorianism. It needed fixing. Yes. The question is how to fix it. Yes. The Council of Ephesus shows us that we have to fix it. Okay. There cannot be a human hypothesis in Christ. That's got to go. We certainly can't get rid of the common human nature. We can't get rid of the individuating traits of Jesus and death. Those have to be there. So these two factors, nature and individuating traits, cannot make up a hypothesis. There's something missing from St. Basil's recipe. A hypothesis is going to have to be common nature plus individuating traits plus X. What's X? Tune in next week. Thank you, Dr. Marshall.